Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, Jesus said, I will build my church and pandemics nor swarming bees will stand against it. We can, uh, we can do anything with him. Well, uh, it's great to see you. And uh, I want to say a particular welcome to anyone who's visiting this morning. Uh, welcome to you. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. It's beautiful to worship together as a church family, isn't it? Um, I want to say a particular welcome to people watching online because we have a whole bunch of people who are at home at the moment with, uh, in ISO with COVID and various things. So hello to everybody who's online. I hope you uh, have enjoyed your time with us wherever you are in your living room uh, watching along. Well, open up to the Gospel of Mark. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark for a couple of weeks now and we're up to verse 14 through to 20 today. So Mark chapter 1. Uh, verse 14 through to 20. And we've seen that uh, so far, the way that Mark's gospel opens is through John the Baptist's ministry. And there's this prophecy that's uh, spoken by Isaiah that one would come and prepare the way. It's a beautiful thing because we're reminded that Jesus wasn't an afterthought. He was a promise, a long-held promise that he would come. And then we saw that Jesus takes this unusual step uh, of being baptised, and we were sort of wondering about that. Why did Jesus have to get baptised? He wasn't a sinner, uh, but Jesus comes along and he is baptised, and this is because he identifies with sinners. He comes and rubs shoulders amongst sinners and actually takes the place of sinners. And so this was a, a powerful moment where Jesus goes under the water, he comes up, and heaven opens, and heaven is pleased with him. His Father is pleased with him, and so Jesus is commissioned for his work on earth. First stop, well, it's the wilderness. Remember, he is driven out to the wilderness by the Spirit, and he is tempted, uh, and yet Jesus passes where Adam failed in the wilderness. And all of this was preparation. So verse 1 to 13 is the prologue of Mark. It's all preparation that is leading up to Jesus' public ministry in Galilee, from verse 14. And there's really a transition that happens here from John the Baptist to Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist had to decrease, Jesus has to increase. Well, now is the time for Jesus' increasing because John the Baptist gets arrested. Herod was afraid that John was going to lead a revolt against him. So John is arrested and now here comes Jesus onto the scene and he very much carries over the same kind of ministry that John the Baptist had, and we see that by the message that he comes proclaiming. So let's read it, verse 14 through to 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Well, fishing was a roaring trade in Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was really like a massive inland lake. 
and it was full of fish. And the main diet of Galileans wasn't the chicken or the beef, it was fish. Fish was cheaper. And so these four men, Simon, Andrew, James and John, they weren't just out for a spot of fishing here this day, they were commercial fishermen. They're part of a booming local economy. We often think of the disciples as poor and lowly, but they were businessmen. I think this text makes it clear. We see here that even Zebedee, uh, the father of James and John, had hired servants, and so they're employers. They're not the down-and-outers. They're not the lowliest kind. So we shouldn't think of them as poor and vulnerable with nothing better to do when Jesus comes passing by simply saying, follow me. Because we see that immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now, I wonder if you were in the busy, a busy day at work and someone came up to you and said, follow me, what you would first think. You might think, hang on, I don't really know you that well. I mean, I've met you before, but I don't know you that well. Or maybe it might be, I'm really busy at the moment. I'll come, but let me finish what I'm doing. Or excuse me, but where are we going exactly? I don't usually just follow along with people when I don't know where we're going. But these fishermen, they leave their nets immediately and they follow him. They, they make an instant commitment. It's quite an impressive response, isn't it? They have good lives. They have good livelihoods. But immediately when Jesus calls, they leave those good things behind and they follow him. Now, it's really easy, I think, to be impressed and inspired by this radical commitment of these four men. And it's probably equally a little bit depressing about whether we could do the same. It's doubtful whether we have that kind of commitment. There's an easy comparison to make, is what I'm getting at, between the way that the disciples respond and the way that we might respond. But before we focus on their commitment, I want you to consider something else. What power there must be in the call of Christ. What power there must be in the call of Christ. What draw there must be in this call. That's what deserves the most attention here. You see, when I walk into my house at night and I smell the amazing smells that are coming from the kitchen, from the dinner cooking in the kitchen, if you were to watch my enthusiasm as I go there, hungry and ready to eat, and if you were to watch me actually throw it down in my hunger, you wouldn't be that impressed by my commitment to that, would you? You wouldn't say, look at him, look how amazing he is at his commitment to this food. No, what would deserve the praise and attention in that scenario? It would be the thing that's drawing me. The food, what power it has. And that's the point here. What power there must be in the call of Christ to make grown men and women leave good things behind and follow him. The first thing we see is that the power of the call of Christ is in the offering. We learn from John's gospel that this isn't the first time that these four 
men have spent time with Jesus. They've heard his message. They've heard about him. They've spent some time with him, and it's already made an impact on them. Jesus has been walking around Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does this mean? Jesus is talking about a time that has come to its completion. What kind of time is he talking about? Well, there are one of two Greek words that Mark could have used here for time. The first one is chronos, and you probably can hear the meaning of that word as it sort of translates into our word for chronology. The passing of time, our daily lives involve normal chronos, the passing of historical time. Most of our days, there's nothing that you would consider that historic that happens, it's just the passing of time. But Mark doesn't use the word chronos here, he uses the word kairos, which is a particular moment in time that is so important that it shapes all of history. So it's not just another passing moment of history, it's a historic event. No one remembers September 10, 2001, that was just another day. Everyone remembers September 11, 2001, when planes crashed into the Twin Towers. It was a chaos moment. It was a historic moment, a moment that changed all of history. And so what time is being spoken of here? Well, the Old Testament prophets, they spoke of a time where God would personally visit his people and bring his rule and reign. From the beginning, God's creation has always been called his kingdom, but sin entered into the world and Satan's kingdom revolted against God, rivaled God. None of the kings of God's people, Israel, were ever able to establish the kingdom of God on earth, but the prophets spoke of a king who would personally come and visit the earth and bring God's kingdom. And so Jesus here says, the time is fulfilled. It's now here with me. Jesus is that promised king. And so the power of the king's call is in his offering. The promised king has come and he is holding out the kingdom to his people, to all people. It has arrived with the king, and this is good news. It's great news because for the people of that day, they are under the rule of Caesar. Caesar is Lord. They are under the oppressive rule of Rome, and yet now Jesus is holding out the kingdom to them and saying, God has personally visited you, and he is holding out the kingdom to you. This is an incredible moment for the present, but also has incredible implications for the future. You know, many religions of this world would say to you that as a reward for your good life and the good things that you've done, you may enter some kind of spiritual paradise. It doesn't sound particularly appealing. It's a spiritual paradise. But Jesus came offering the kingdom a physical creation. You know, our final state is not in heaven as immaterial souls, disembodied souls. Our future is a new earth in physical bodies, new bodies in a new physical earth. This is our final state. This is the promise to all those who believe in him. And so Jesus personally visits to hold out the kingdom to all people. And this is the power of the call. It's in what he is offering. And I wonder this morning if you've considered that. Have you considered what the king is offering? that he is holding out to you the kingdom. This is the good news. It's not bad news. 
Most people think that religion and things of faith and Christianity in general is bad news. It's not. The offer of the kingdom, the king's offering, is to hold out the kingdom to you. The time is fulfilled. The chaos moment has happened. It's bubbling over. It is here now. The king has come and he's offering you the kingdom. So how should people respond? It's interesting. There's many ways that people respond to God today. For example, we respond to God through vocabulary, through words. You know, we learn the the words of the kingdom, words like brother and fellowship and being born again. So we learn the words of the kingdom and people respond in words only. Well, then there's values. People, you know, can last years and years in church communities based on shared values about things. Could be anything. You have a shared value about, I don't know, alcohol or politics. You have a shared value about something like modesty or not using bad language. And you exist in communities with other people based on those shared values. And this is what is translated as a response to God. Or family beliefs, it's just something that you inherited. This is what we do, our family through generations have kind of had this belief, and so we sort of do too, and it's just a sentimental family idea, a family tradition, the way we were all raised. And these things have a certain kind of cultural power on us. It's people-pleasing power, family power, emotional power. But how should we respond to the holding out of the kingdom from the king? I went to Thailand about five years ago for a holiday and I noticed as I wandered around everywhere that there were pictures and signs of Thailand's king. It was everywhere. And it was really clear to me they loved and honoured their king. They loved their king and he... I learned from him that he wasn't about him, that he wasn't oppressive and selfish. For many decades, this king of Thailand was a king who didn't just keep to himself in his palace, his life of privilege, but he would leave his palace and he would go out to the towns and he would visit people. And they loved him for it. And they honoured him. This is the only and right response to the personal visitation of the king. Jesus says here, repent, and believe the gospel. Turn from your way of life, believe in the good news of the king and the offer of his kingdom. He's calling for an allegiance to the offering that he is bringing. It sounds simple, but the reality is that the announcement of the kingdom sets up a clash. Now, many people thought that the clash would be with Rome, that you would simply join Jesus' army And you would fight against Rome. But the clash here is different because Jesus' command is not what you expect. It's not one of picking up weapons. It's one of repent and believe. This is the right response to the coming of the king. And you notice this is Jesus carrying on the same ministry that John the Baptist said that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Jesus came with a message to confront, saying repent and believe. Jesus is saying the same thing. Repent means to turn and around and to go the other direction. You're walking down the path of sin and idolatry. You need to turn around. You need to change your mind about your life, change your mind about God, change your life about your life of sin. 
and turn back to God. And that always brings a clash with your current life. It brings a clash with your soul. It it means a new attitude toward God, one of loving him and not this world. But it's not just turning away. It's not just repentance. It's not just stopping sinning that actually saves. We also must believe. Believe the good news. Notice we don't have to work for it. It's news. It's not advice. It's news. It's about Jesus who is the king who has come to save his people. He is going to do it all. We must believe. Clutch on to the gospel. Hold on to the good news of the king. You see, it's something deeper than just words and values and family heritage. It's a decision of your will. The deep inner place of your life, it's a decision to turn around from who you are and what you are to believing in the gospel and coming under the rule and the reign of the king. See, how do you know if you've just taken a seat in a church community based on values and heritage and politics and and values? How do you know you've done that? How do you know whether the kingdom has actually broken into your heart? You have repented and you have believed. You love the king. So when Jesus passes by the Sea of Galilee and he says to the four fishermen, follow me, takes on new meaning. We now appreciate who the me really is. This is the king who is offering the kingdom to all. Follow me. And so these words don't just have the power of suggestion for the fishermen, but they have all the power of a divine summons. This is an important cultural thing to understand. No rabbis, no teachers of the law would go around recruiting their students. If you wanted to find a rabbi to teach you, you would go and find them. And you would ask them. But here, Jesus goes recruiting, saying, follow me, walk around with me, walk around behind me and follow my ways that they may know me. Why did Jesus do this? Because he has an authority that ordinary rabbis, ordinary teachers, ordinary rulers of this earth do not have. He comes with the summons of a king. Follow me. It's an authority that's superior to anyone else or any other thing that you could follow in this world. It's a divine summons. And immediately they follow because they are hearing in their ears the summons of the king. And this is what the power of the call of Christ really is. It's not just a suggestion. It's a summons. You hear the voice of the king saying, follow me, and you follow him. These words of Jesus are him laying a hold of their lives. Jesus here is asserting a right to their whole life. He's asking for total allegiance. So much so that they immediately leave their nets and they follow him. I wonder if you see this this morning. Do you see this? What makes a wholehearted follower of Jesus? Don't just be quick to look at their awesome commitment their radical commitment. You have to see the power of the call. The power of the call is in the king's offering. 
what he's come to offer you. He's holding out the kingdom of God. It's not bad news to you. It is good news, but it will clash with your heart. So repent and believe. Secondly, the power of the call is the king's summoning. The king lays a claim to your whole life and you hear it deep within your inner being. And this is what leads to their radical following. So the questions for us are simple. Have you seen the king's offering? I know there's many other offerings in this world, isn't there, at the moment. There's many others that come to you holding out something, some kind of vision of the future that looks pleasing and delightful to the eyes. But have you seen the king's offering, the eternal kingdom that he has come to bring? Secondly, have you heard the king's summoning? It's not just a matter of family values and heritage to you, but you have heard deep within your heart him say, follow me. And the third thing is to ask yourself, are you following? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Not because you're highly committed, but because the power of the call has come upon you. The summons of the king has come upon you. The question isn't, are you interested in the king? Nor at one time in your life did you make a decision to follow him and the emotions were flowing and and the whole deal and you decided to follow him. Not that. The question is, are you following him now? Are you a follower of Jesus now? Are you still thrilled by his offering? Are you still hearing his summoning where he's leading you in your life? Are you still following? You know, there's a way that we can hear this passage as just one more dull way to be a better person than you are, to be held in a community just by cultural power or family values or beliefs. But if so, you're not seeing the power of the call of Christ, the summons of the king. Well, what happened to those who saw the power of the call of Christ and responded? Well, we know that for Simon Peter, he went to Rome and he preached the gospel all over. Peter was the one who was used to begin the church. This local fisherman was a man who was changed and transformed powerfully and used by God. Andrew went all the way to the borders of Russia, preaching the gospel. John became the bishop of Ephesus in Greece. These are ordinary fishermen. And I want you to see the transformation that takes place here because their lives went from things like local trade talk and gossip and family affairs and Galilean politics to the expanded life of being used by God. Their minds, once concerned and committed to the smallest of things, now overflowed with the deep things of God. The wonderful deeds of God. That's what got their heart moving. They became fishers of men, just as Jesus said they will come. I will make you become fishers of men. He has radically transformed them. Maybe we need to be reminded of that this morning. We need to be reminded of his offering. Hear his summoning, how he is calling us as a church, that we might leave our trivia behind and go and make disciples. You might think this morning, I could never be one of those radical Christians, you know, those ones who always seem to be so passionate and committed ready to follow Jesus at the drop of a hat, and they raise their hands in worship. I could never be someone who leaves all the good things in my life behind. But I would say that the only difference between anyone like that and you 
is simply seeing the power of the call. It's not them. Don't marvel at the commitment. Marvel at the power of the king's call. What power there must be in the call of Christ to make grown men and women leave good things behind and follow him. Let's pray. I want to ask you this morning if you're still thrilled by his offering, if that is where you've set your hope, that the king has come and he is coming to bring the kingdom. I want to ask you this morning if you've heard the king's summoning, saying, follow me, to leave good things behind and to not live your faith based on shared values and family heritage, but to respond to the King. Father God, we need your grace in this. We need to see once again and be thrilled by the power of the King and his call. Lord, I pray that each one of us, Lord, might leave things behind, even good things behind, to follow to follow after you. Lord, may you work in our hearts with such power that we might, Lord, be used greatly of you to become fishers of men, to see many people come into your kingdom through us. Lord, that's our desire. Not every day, because we're weak and we're fleshly, Lord. But every time we come back and we hear that call of the Lord Jesus saying, follow me, follow me, we know it's effective. We know it's working. We know you continue to hold us in. You help us to persevere to the end. So, Lord, for any this morning who have perhaps heard of the good news that the kingdom has come, Lord, I pray that we might repent and believe the gospel and that we might follow you. I pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand together as we close and sing.